Welcome to the Common Reality Podcast. My name is Morenike. I am a West African woman who is anchored in African culture, but has grown, lived, and expanded as a human across three continents. The African philosophy of Ubuntu says that I am because we are. Though we routinely experience a common thread in our humanity, the focus on our differences seems to be intensifying. Well, in this podcast, we will try to go the other way, closer to each other. We will answer Ubuntu's call to empathy by exploring our different perspectives through the sharing of our personal journey. If I, fellow human, immerse myself in a small piece of your story, can I then see the world the way you see it, even for a brief moment? This is going to be a little bit like holding someone's hands and looking straight in their eyes while speaking with them. Hard to not empathize then. So let's try this. Let's build togetherness. When I started to think about creating the Common Reality Podcast, Nelson was one of the very first people that came to mind. I am in absolute awe of all that he transcended while still nurturing a kind and rich spirit during what has been an extraordinary life, both in its ups and its downs. His story is pure inspiration and took shape through the collision of worlds that typically just do not come in contact. Learning perspective, mustering the strength to love through deeds and hard sacrifice, and dreaming new possibilities as a young boy growing up in a village in Zimbabwe, refusing to be defined by the poverty that struck in that village seizing some of the world's best educational and professional opportunities once in America, yet remaining at heart the boy from the hut with the asbestos roof, even when material success showed up. Nelson easily travels between these worlds and carries us with him as we uncover one more time the immense power of empathy and the surreal resilience of the human spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, here is my friend, Nelson Chiwara. Hi, Nelson. Hello, Nikki. How are you doing? I am so excited to be welcoming you on the second episode of the Common Reality Podcast. I've, uh, I know I've bugged you a lot about this podcast, and now we're here. I love it. Love it. It's great seeing you across the ocean. Yeah, right. And now this new software has this uh, thing where I can actually see you. So it's amazing. So to give our viewers a little bit of um, context, you were born and raised in Zimbabwe. Then you attended Princeton, where um, you graduated in public policy and international affairs. Quick note here. After leaving Zimbabwe, Nelson actually first attended high school at the United World College in New Mexico. And then headed to Princeton University for college. All right, back to the conversation. Then you worked in investment banking in New York. Then you worked at a hedge fund. Then you attended our dear Harvard Business School, where we met. Then you worked at Blackstone in real estate and deployed a lot of capital, acquiring buildings and, and, and properties. And then after a few years of doing that, you then joined WeWork, where you're currently at. And I know that in the background, you're starting to work on your own ventures. And so it's been an amazing and improbable life story. And I am so excited to have the opportunity to talk about it with you today. Oh, thanks so much. No one has ever 
succinctly put my resume uh, together that way. I wish I could do it. I'll probably get more success in uh, in interviews and and such. But, but thanks for having me, Nick. <laughs> so. I remember us meeting in business school and at first I was like, I would see you in the hallways and you had these long scarves and we would stop and we would have these conversations. And I remember that what drew, what drew me to you was the fact that you always remembered what we talked about. Um, you, you know, I, I was like, what drive, you know, what, what, draws me to Nelson and it was your empathy. You would stop in the hallway and we would, you know, whatever the project was, whatever I was mentioning, you would always sort of remember what we had talked about before. And you always connected with me in that moment, every single time you were always very present. And then I remember we had this thing in business school where students would come in front of the class and talk about their personal stories. And then when you told your personal story, all the way from Zimbabwe to Boston, where we were, to business school, I was literally sobbing. I remember like, the emotion was like, emotion overtook me. And I and I remember linking what you had been through to your uh, capacity to empathize and to be connected in the moment. So I wanted to ask you, before we start even talking about your story and telling it, I wanted to ask you what you think has been the single most important and life-defining moment. What sort of changed the course of your life, you think? I, I really want to start there. Oh, thanks for that introduction, Nika. And I think, uh, you know, you're too kind to me. Uh, a lot of my interactions with you were just always me being in awe of this very vivacious, very smart, and very full of energy uh, African woman who uh, I think for me, you know, you just always were probably one of the few very singular individuals uh, at HBS uh, in the sense that I think everyone who's ever encountered you can never forget you. So it wasn't really a feat of my mind to be able to, to remember every single conversation I had with you because it was always interesting talk. Um, but anyways, so, so in terms of like what, what I think about my life and, um, you know, I think about what, what single events really pushed me in a particular direction that I probably normally was not, was not the straight line path that I was on, uh, was that I was very lucky to, to get a scholarship to go to, uh, to school in New Mexico, uh, what's called the United World College. Um, you know, it's one of, then I think it was one of 11 or 12 schools around the world. And I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to represent Zimbabwe there. You know, a school with 100 kids from, I don't know, 70 old countries and getting the, the privilege of, uh, of representing your country there, you know, was a privilege in itself. But I think what was different about me versus, you know, compared to some of uh, the other students who were represented Zimbabwe, the other United World Colleges, was that I, I literally probably would not have been able to go to school, you know, if I didn't get that scholarship in Zimbabwe. And... You know, who knows? And I probably would have hustled something and maybe tried to get some scholarships. I, I don't think I would have just never really, you know, done my, my last two years of high school or been able to go to university. But I think, you know, the, the path would have been way more difficult. I definitely would not have gone to Princeton. I definitely probably would still be uh, in my village, really, because we, you know, we, it was at a junction in my life when, you know, destitution was really around the corner. 
Uh, so getting that privilege and, and getting that opportunity it really is what sped me on on the path that I still am on now. So I think that's what I would probably say was a life-defining or life-changing um, interaction or change in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us the story, right? What needs to happen in someone's life for them to start in Zimbabwe, you know, have sort of a, a bit of a sort of middle-class upbringing for the first part of their life, then actually move to the village, you know, experience the hardships that came with that, but also the beauty um, that came with that. We can talk about that. Um, to then move to the U.S. Um, and attend some of the world's most prestigious institutions. What needs to happen in someone's life for, for those things to happen? I was reflecting on this um, some, some weeks ago. Um, I mean, like, I'm a very big avid reader of, of history, still am. And it's a habit that I picked up when you know I was maybe five or six. I used to love watching cartoons. That was you know in the middle class phase of my life that you that you alluded to there. Uh, and one of the things that really uh, struck me was the fact that the world was so much larger than I think this probably happens with every child. Uh, was so much larger than I I was immediately immediate to you know? uh, and that you know within the life that I was living I. I could immediately see that the, the, the life that we were living. So, you know, for like a little bit of background. So, my my father was not really interested in, in being a parent. Um, so, most of my my childhood uh, was really uh, with me being really close to my mother. In everything she did, I would always be right behind her. And you know, we, from the, the, the first times that I started having memory until, you know, when we eventually went to the village, you know, my life was, I could visit, I could see very viscerally that it was getting worse and worse. And that was just because my father was disengaging more and more, and he was the primary breadwinner. You know, my mother was, she was a housewife, if you want to call it that. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, when she also noticed that my father was losing interest in us as a family, you know, and the way he would do that is, he would just not buy food or you would not pay school fees or you just might not see him for a week and he doesn't really explain where he's been. And, you know, in that time, he was studying other families, really. That's what he was spending his time on and drinking a lot. Uh, but my mother then started going to South Africa to, 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 to sell things and basically provide labor in people's homes. So she, you know, she was just someone who was done hustling. But then from, from her returns, she would regale me with the stories of what she saw there. And that sort of was my first entry into the fact that the world was so much larger and that there was so much more, I wouldn't call it opportunity, but so much more excitement and so much more ability to, to learn more than I was, you know, exposed to then. But that, I think, then made me really become a dreamer. And, you know, as, as I progressively grew older, I think, you know, that there's that Diderot thing that, you know, everyone confronts the world through reason, memory, and imagination. And, you know, some people probably lean more in one way or the other. I really was someone who just really was more about my imagination. And I always was planning and coming up with stories and alternative realities that I could live in. Um, and finding, like, history books that couldn't give me access to even more ways to imagine a different life, I, I think is what sort of set me on a path where, even when we, you know, we got so destitute, we became homeless, and then we had to go to the village. 
and you became basically a subsistence um, farming or living individuals or as a family, you know, the, the fact that I, I had a, this core set of these history books, um, which I had um, inherited from my grandfather, which he had inherited because he used to cook for a white family that left after him, after independence in Zimbabwe. They just left him all these books, which no one had ever read. They, those books were really my only entree to, to the outside world. And a lot of, I think, what I, I really gained from reading them, because a lot of them were sort of story, they were sort of biographical type stories, is that, you know, one of my favorite characters were, you know, the, the American presidents, because one of them was on the American presidents, which ended in 1960 with JFK still alive. I think, you know, really just reading through all those snippets and vignettes of their lives gave me this idea that even in the most prosperous countries, you know, with a lot of wealth and a lot of power, you know, it, a lot of the people who ultimately go to, to the top of the societies don't necessarily come from, from privilege. Um, to some, you know, a lot of them do, but, you know, there were, you know, the oddballs who made it all the way up. And, you know, that, that sort of gave me this idea that I, I should not let whatever my circumstances then limit my imagination of just how I could actually do a very big 180 and live a completely different life. And I think that that's probably why I applied for the United World College Scholarship, too. Every time I hear your life story, I just I just get so absorbed and inspired by it. Do you remember what, what that felt like? So even though you were standing in a village and the possibilities and the options were few, do you remember what it felt like to be physically in one space, but having your mind so forcefully opened and hopeful? Do you remember what that felt like? I mean, I think... In a lot of ways, it's actually not really changed in how I, I live now. I think it's probably more like a personality quirk. Like, you know, just to give you some context, you know, ever since COVID started from like noon until 5, 6 p.m., I usually am riding my bike and, you know, I take my work calls from the bike and I stop, etc. But, you know, a good chunk of what I'm doing when I'm, you know, I bike like 50 kilometers in a day is I'm, I'm just letting my mind wander and it's sort of telling me alternative ways that I could be living my reality. And I think that I, that sort of took, you know, got me going when I was in the village because, you know, one of the things about my life was um, I also went to a boarding school, um, like one of those parochial Catholic boarding schools. And it was not, it, you know, it was not for, for rich people. It was in the middle of nowhere in the bush. Um, but I, I sort of really picked up on the fact that even within like the lower middle class and lower and poor um, milieu within Zimbabwe, I still was sort of did not have access to a lot of other things. You know, people would talk about the internet. Like I could not even dream about having the internet. You know, people would talk about you know what they watched on DSTV, which you know I didn't even have a television. But what I think, um, what I think by allowing my mind to wander ended up doing for me was that it just made me completely you know disconnect my reality from what i thought my future could be and i would always have all these random um simulations really of just how i thought my life would pan out and it was in those days that i decided i want to go to school in the united states um because you know i'd read all these stories and all these books and like encyclopedias all these like random crap that you know, an old white man who 
would have in his house in the 1950s, who then gave it to my grandfather and then suddenly ended up in my lap. And a lot of it was just, it wasn't really connected in terms of, it wasn't literature that was like novels or something to entertain you. A lot of it was uh, the typical stuff people have on their coffee tables. So a lot of maps and, you know, a lot of like stats on how much corn the USSR produced, how much whatever steel the USA produced. So a lot of, I, I, you know, it wasn't reading that I think, you know, if I have a child, I will not expose them to that sort of reading. But for me, what it ended up doing was that it helped me untether myself from my physical location. I just always felt like I was floating in, you know, up, up high. And then I would then create a story for myself with an alternative reality that I could live. And, you know, I probably bought into a lot of, you know, what probably were like Cold War type propaganda type things that were in those books. And really got this belief that you know, if I go to the United States, I probably would have a much better chance of of competing um, and of being able to, you know, have, set my own path in my life and you know have access to resources and all that other stuff that if you're a poor kid, you imagine you'd get if you if you were not poor. So I think that, that sort of really was uh, something that. You know, I really now know was a very powerful influence on me because you know that I had peers who were my friends and would play soccer and etc. And I think you know, back to that video thing. You know, if you're a poor kid and you're you're hanging out, you're 12 and you're thinking, okay, I live in this village, and you look at all the adults and you look at all the, the people who are marginally older than you, and you see them walk through life, you sort of really presume you'll stay in the village, and that's because. You know, reason and memory tell you that it's what you should do. For me, you know, it's the fact that I just maybe was stupid and naive in particular ways, and I allow my imagination to make me dream in particular nonsensical ways. I sort of put myself on a path that took me in a different direction from from those guys. We're all still alive. You know, every time I go back to his mother, I still yep. hang out with him. We drink beer. I think what you're just describing—that ability to float and to dream. Um, is really powerful, right? That ability to say, whatever my circumstances are, I know I'm in a village, um, I know the options of you here, but I'm I'm dreaming and I'm sort of, you know, deploying my energies um, towards that dream. I think that's very powerful. But I want to ask you, what was your experience of poverty? And I want to ask you, to what extent did that experience with poverty check you out of your ability to dream at times? Right? What was? Did that happen? That's a very loaded question. Uh, <laughs> let me see if I can unpack it. I mean, I think one of the, you know, being poor is, is you know, it, it's a reality. Um, in some ways, it's it's circumstance, and then in some ways, it doesn't really exist, right? Because it's all relative. If if you're in the village, like you know, within the within the village circumstances that I was in. I mean, we all knew we were all poor because we were subsistence farming people um, who lived in a village. We didn't have running water or electricity. We all sort of had an idea that that's pretty normal for most people, so that there was something we were deprived of. But then at the same time, you know, the house that I lived in had asbestos roof or asbestos whatever covering at the top. Some people didn't have that. You know, they just had thatched house. So, you know, within that context, you you know, you, you are poor, everyone is poor, but everyone sort of looks at you and says, oh, okay, but at least you have X and Y that make you make the marginally less poor than others. So I think, you know, a lot of how you experience your poverty, if you want to call it that, 
you know, is really just a function of, you know, back to that imagination question of, you know, what exactly do you hope for yourself and what do you um, require of yourself? And then, you know, what limitations do you think exist that are beyond your control? Um, so, you know, to, to give you like an example, you know, I, one of my good friends then, um, he never left the village. You know, his dream was to have a house that had, you know, like a asbestos uh, roof instead of a thatched one. He wanted to, when he get married, he wanted to have his own cows. Um, he wanted to have a good stretch of land that he could grow stuff on. You know, he worked really hard and he's accomplished a lot of that. And I think, you know, within his own experience of his life, I think he would tell you that he's less poor now than he was then. Even though, you know, if you met him, you'd be like, okay, this guy's poor. And, you know, objectively he's poor by, you know, most standards and most measures. And it's all of that being around round roundabout way of saying, I think I I experienced my poverty in like discrete ways of being deprived of things that I wish I had had, some of which I did not actually know were very basic. But you know, over time as I grew old, I realized they were basic. For example, I didn't have a, my first pair of like denim jeans was you know when I was more than twelve years old. The time before that, I would see other people have them, and I would ask my, you know, my father to, to try to you know, buy me clothes. But, you know, I have one pair of pants, so you know a lot of that was just being deprived and living a world that, that that you know could could have been objectively better in a material sense. But I didn't really dwell on it because it wasn't something that I necessarily thought was holding me back from whatever the dreaming that I was doing or whatever. Because I was a very good student in school, like as long as I was continuing to be to be competitive at school, even if I didn't have the books that my my my, my competitors had, and I, you know I didn't have the extra classes maybe they might have, as long as I thought I could still outcompete them, I just always saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Because my when my mother always constantly bit into me was that education was my only way out of the circumstances that I was in. So you know I I was poor. And it was not a good life in its own ways, but I did not. It wasn't something that was always like suffocating, and something that I thought about every single day. Like, oh my God, I'm poor. Why did I have this? Why did I have that? Um, I think I, I was very lucky that that you know some of it is actually a function of sexism in, in a way. It was I, the younger sister, was like two years younger than me. I mean, she was she had to do a lot more work around around the house than I had to. So I I, I was very privileged in being allowed time. Just because you know boys didn't work as much, uh, to be able to do all this weird dreaming and read all these random books that um, that were not even part of you know any curriculum, and you know it, it would have been hard for my sister, for example, who lived in the same circumstances, to necessarily live that same existence. So I was rich in other ways, even if you know, in material senses I was not. So that was long-winded. I don't know if it even answers the question you posed to me, uh, but. No, I think it's powerful. I think it's powerful because I think it says a lot about what it is that we feel and what it is that we see when we're in situations. So somebody hearing your story from the outside would only focus on that salient point, on the poverty. But when when you're in it, life just goes on. And so it's it's all about like where you're whether you're, you're watching the, the train goes by or whether you're sitting in the train. So if you're sitting in the on the poverty train, the focus of your life is different. You know, um, it's about 
the things that are universal about life. Am I progressing? Am I dreaming? Am I moving around? Am I? And that's very interesting. It sort of humanizes that experience in a way that we tend, that many probably just don't. I was just going to add something. Like, you know, if I think about my life now, I live in Brooklyn in Park Slope. And I definitely, um, I don't know, like a very high earner. And I have actual wealth, etc. Like I'm not really remotely close to poor, uh, even by Western standards. I, I can't really profess that I'm happier now than I was then. So, I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm as happy as I've always been. And I've always just always been happy. And I think that some of that is just because I, I have maybe a disposition and personality that sort of allowed me to, to sort of exist in that, in that frame in the Soldier village and then be able to live it. But a lot of the people who never left, like, I don't think they're worse for it. I think that's amazing. And I was just going to tell you, I was just going to talk about that, about the fact that there's something about your personality and there's something about the way that you sort of absorb those experiences that sort of made you not dwell on the positive or on the negative, right? And I think that there's a, there might be a big philosophical learning there, but I still wanted to ask you what you hated the most about poverty. I know you had a way to take it in stride and just treat it just like, you know, any life circumstance, but was there something in particular about it that you absolutely hated? I hated that my life basically had to live by like the, the sun and because we didn't have electricity and candles were very expensive. You know, when, when the sun set, like, you know, you're in bed at eight latest. And that, I think, was just always a limitation that I really hated. Because, um, I mean, I've, up until now, like, I think I'm more of like a night owl type person. And, you know, the, that, that stricture really actually completely affected in a very visceral way my day-to-day um, you know, like I would have to do all my homework before the sunset. You know, you, you know, you sort of have to fit everything in, in that, you know, 10 to 12 hours of daylight, um, which, you know, because you're living in a village and subsistence lifestyle, you, know, you have to go fetch water from the borehole. You know, there are all these other tasks that you have to perform. Um, you know, to me, it always felt like poverty was stealing hours from my day, which it probably was. Well, I mean, it slept more, I guess. Uh, but that is, is one thing that, you know, I, I'll go back to the village and live there. Actually, maybe even when I'm retired, but I'm going to have some really good solar and you know, I'm going to have water in the house and I'm going I'm to have a fridge. <laughs> exactly. You'll be able to read yeah, your books at 10 and, p.m. You know, <laughs> be able to like, stream some TV or something. I don't know. Like, there are these like, luxuries that um, maybe if I'd never really experienced them, I might, I might not necessarily think they're very essential. Uh, but I think ability to have light is a very essential thing that a lot of people don't have. You once told me also about helplessness and how that felt. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, less interior. It's more just about the the, the way that then my, my struggles then manifested themselves. So, you know, like I mentioned, you know, my father was sort of really playing a disappearing act, but he didn't really, you know, until later on in my life, in my teenage years, he didn't, he was still sort of semi in the picture. And, you know, I would spend a lot of time trying to chase him down to, to have him live up to his obligations, 
not just to me, but you know, to my younger sister and my other younger brother who's late now. And, you know, out later on, you know, even another brother. And, you know, my, my, my mother and my brother, the one who's late, you know, were HIV positive. So they, they sort of had health issues. Um, and which, you know, required money to be able to, 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 you know, access healthcare. Uh, my little sister was two years younger than me. You know, if I'm 12, she's 10. Um, if I, I can't just say to her, oh, we, we were being kicked out of school because our father can't pay school fees and then not feel a responsibility for having to try to find a solution. So that I think, you know, poverty became a lot more challenging the older I grew. Because a lot of responsibilities started being added onto me uh, that way about looking after my siblings. Um, because, you know, you, you could be happy in your own self and create your own narrative in your own head that lets you be content with whatever station you're in. But if you actually do have two or three other people who are looking at you and hoping you come up with a solution for how they'll go to school, like, you know, that's a challenge. And you know, that becomes a mental strain. And I think that's probably, you know, the helplessness um, that you are alluding to. And, you know, ultimately, it was also one of the things that spurred me on to live in Zimbabwe because I knew, you know, my little sister could never go to university or go to school. Then what would happen to her? She'd be married young to someone in the village. I didn't want that for her. You know, I had a little brother who was 12 years younger than me. You know, like, there was just really no plan for what would happen with him. Like, how would he even eat? Um, and then, you know, I had a mother who was very ill. Um, so, the, you know, as you get progressively older, like imagination does not feed anyone. And, you know, people still need sustenance. And people yeah. need hope. Which, uh, but, but even though you had all these daunting and sobering realities sort of like, Casting a bit of a shadow um, on your on your on your childhood, you still feel like you had a childhood, and you still feel like you were able to dream. Um, and I remember that your mother helped you protect that dream. Correct? She never sort of yanked that away from you when you were dreaming about leaving the country or when you were dreaming about. Uh, studying in the United States, and our mothers do that for for us, right? Um, no matter where we are on the planet, they will sort of keep the light on onto your dream. And I wanted you to, to speak a little bit about that. I mean, uh, my mother was, you know, the most impactful individual in my life, which is true for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, one of the things um, with about her was that she, I think she realized early on that I, I liked reading books. And, you know, in Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe was, you know, president for 36, 38 years or whatever, you know, he was in a former teacher and he was really into making sure everyone goes to school, which is probably his only accomplishment in his time in office was that he, you know, for my mother, when she was growing up, you know, there were very few schools because it was, you know, during colonial era. Um, and, the, you know, most of this, the, they had a bottleneck system where, you know, they, they only have so many natives ultimately going up and up, the, you know, getting more schooling. And people would get squeezed out. Mugabe came in, you know, he was really passionate about making sure that there were schools everywhere. And I think it, that got beat up in, beat into my mother's head that, you know, the, the only way that they could ever be uh, consistent uh, and self-perpetuating success for her, for her kids, would be through her kids' education. 
And because I, maybe because I'm the oldest, or maybe because I just really liked reading way more than your typical child. You know, I could always, I did way better in school than even she expected. And I think she, she sort of then developed a, a, a respect for me, um, and a respect for my, my, my judgment, um, and the respect for my potential. And she nurtured it. Um, and you know, that at some level, probably at the expense of my sister, if you were to talk to her, you know, she, she's mentioned it to me sometimes that, you know, she, she thought my mother was way too, too lax with me and just gave me too much rope. Um, but I think if we, you know, that personality fit between her and me, um, I think was, was, was good for me because it allowed me to, to, to be a dreamer and it gave me definitely hours in the day when my sister would be with my mother in the fields and she'd be okay with me just reading, sitting over there, which, you know, sounds terrible <laughs> saying it back, but, you know, she, she allowed me the resources in a limited abilities uh, for me to, to sort of get on this journey that, I, that ultimately sent me here. As you were telling the story of the opportunity and the room that you got versus your sister, something came to my mind, which is that it becomes a weird, self-fulfilling prophecy for young girls in our villages, right? Because, you know, um, your mother or your father in the village uh, don't, don't see necessarily the opportunities that you could seize as a woman. And so the less they see those opportunities, the more they focus on the boys. So it ties back to what you were saying about what we're able to hold in our minds. Um, and, it, you know, and if, if, if our people in some of our villages can hold in their mind possibilities for their daughters, then perhaps the splitting on the chores and the time and the allocation, right? So it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely my my mother thought she was training my sister for what she thought my sister's future would be. Um, and, you know, that, that was very reasonable thing exactly. for her to, to think that because, you know, from her lived memory, because she also grew up close to that village. You know, she was a woman too. Um, and no reason would tell her that, you know, my sister ultimately will be married by some man and you were expected to do all these chores and your head mother-in-law expected to do all these chores. So she was sort of like getting some other weird training, um, which, you know, for, for further context, my sister now lives in Dublin and you know, she's a medical laboratory scientist. So none of like that training ultimately ended up ended up being useful for her, but she doesn't, Amazing. She doesn't even live in the village. Um, but you know, when you meet her, she, you know, if you get her on the on on talking about it, she she can she can give you the lowdown on how she thinks I was somewhat spoiled. Yeah, I can't wait until I I do talk to her about it. So I wanted to start understanding the transition to the United States. Um, how does that feel? Do you do you remember what it felt? to arrive in New Mexico, um, did you feel like you belonged? Um, did you feel like you were an outsider? And, and how many of the lessons that you carried with you from Zimbabwe, from the village, from your ability to dream, were you able to sort of reinvest and redeploy um, once you got to university? Yeah, I mean... So I mean, the school that I went to in New Mexico was in a town called Las Vegas, um, and you know I thought I was going to 
the more famous Las Vegas. <laughs> and you know, if you're ever driving through New Mexico, you should definitely stop by this town. It's a very cute little place, but it's ten thousand people and you know the donkeys and all sorts of like. It's really. I, I got there, and the, my first impression was, I left the village for this. Uh, but I mean, I think in, in terms of the experience itself, I mean, you definitely see going out of one college is it's like a very idealistic uh, set of schools. You know, the, the whole movement is based on how you can create more global peace and a better understanding if like more people went to school within like an international context and they try to put these schools in rural areas because they're trying to force the students to really learn from each other. What I would say about my experience there was it actually was really disappointing. Um, I you know, I, I think I, I showed up with that idealism and that sort of stuff in my head as what this school really would be. Um, but, you know, I've quickly realized that it was more like watching an American high school movie uh, because you know, you've got people who got clicks and you've got weird centers of power within uh, the institution. It was my first time going to school with girls, so I didn't even know how to talk to them. Um, and so, you know, I think for the first month or so, it was really rough. Um, you know, one of the things, too, that happened is, you know, that they, they booked my flight and I didn't have any money because that, you know, my, I was coming from a family that had no cash. So, and, you know, they booked probably the cheapest flight they could. So it took me like almost 40 hours to get there. And you know, one of the things I had to do was, you know, pick over people's like leftover food in airports. When I would be like in an eight-hour layover, and I'm really hungry, um, so I I knew it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I was hoping and you know really pumped to try to to grasp it. But I then realized that you know a good chunk of just what the day-to-day was was not what my little imaginary mind or imaginary world really taught told me to expect. Um, and I was kind of disappointed in how you know some students didn't care that much, um, and you know, they still live nice. Um, you know, there was some amount of homesickness because I you know, I miss my mother and my, my siblings, um, and because I didn't have money was here to pay to to call home, I couldn't really call home because my mother didn't have a phone. Um, so I I sort of really just was isolated um, in a way that. I wasn't expecting, and actually, and I, I thought I would do better because I had gone to boarding school for years, and you know, I'd sort of been trained to be away from my family. But anyways, that 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 isolation was was really pretty jarring, um, and it, it took a while to to really adjust to that environment. And you know, I was now in the social social world where most I would define the the median student there. As probably middle to upper middle class from where they came from, and I am not middle or upper middle class from where I came from. So the, the, the ability to to like create some relationships that would be lifelong, you know, I just wasn't there for me uh, anyway. Um, but you know, I had I had electricity and you know I could do whatever I wanted any odd hour. And, you know, there was some upside to it. And you had your smarts and your mind, and I, and I find that to be a powerful equalizer. 
Um, in my own modest experience, I've always found that uh, that's one thing that whether I feel like I belong or not, I feel like my mind and my ability to think is a great equalizer. So how much since then, I know that you've been able to step into spaces of privilege and of wealth and of prestige. And so I was wondering whether today, when you sit in a room with some of very wealthy, powerful investors, what do you think drives the biggest wedge between you um, and them, if any at all? You can tell me if I'm wrong. Is it your blackness or is it your your, your background um, of not having experienced privilege growing up? What do you think is makes you the least connected to them, if that happens? Ah, that's a very good question. I mean, I think that's another thing I I failed to note about my New Mexico transition is, you know, that was when I sort of encountered the fact that I am black. And that that, that means a completely different thing over here. Because, you know, if, if you're like in a village in Zimbabwe, you know, everyone's sort of black. You know that they're white people. You sort of have maybe um, these like neocolonial views of them as a group. Um, and by that, I mean that they they embody um, success and wealth and intelligence and all these things. Um, but, you know, if I think about when I am living my life here in the United States, I think my economic class or my job when that like that space secondary to just that visceral experience someone has when they look at my face and my African features. Um, so I would say, you know, is I, you know, I'm still early in my career um, and I have a lot of dreams about what I'm going to do with it. Um, the, the biggest challenge that I think really is sort of out there is that in a lot of these spaces, they, the people there, you know, they, they've never really had to interact with black people or people were very significantly different from them until they got into the workplace. And, you know, even when I was at Princeton, you sort of saw that, you know, people who were white and wealthy gravitated to particular frats and their eating clubs, and then they had their own social circles within those. So even you probably saw that at UVA, you saw that in HBS, you know, people sort of, some, you know, a good chunk of the population yeah. um, self-isolated within, like, the social milieu that was most comfortable for them. And unfortunately, in the United States, you know, because of just like the, the racial trauma that is embedded in the history and fabric of the country, and the fact that there's just so much segregation still, um, you know, the, the, the median person, when they encounter me, they just really don't know what to expect, and they don't really know how to, how they think they can um, relate to me. And so, you know, you can end up with, you know, someone who's next cubicle from you, who also went to Princeton, who also went to HPS, who also worked in, like you have really the same lives over the last 15 years. Um, but I think that the, the, but it still is that like invisible wall where, yeah, I, you know, not all of it is born out of malice, but I think a lot of it is just born out of ignorance and just not in that fear um, of like saying the wrong thing or thinking the wrong thing. Um, and there is some amount of selection too, right? In like the, the types of human beings who end up in some of these spaces are not necessarily the types of human beings that I were my peers when I was doing my public policy degree. Um, you know, if you see that in HBS, you know, the people who were at HKS 
you know, they are different. Um, and I think if, if you are someone who is black, like, the Kennedy School, the government yeah, school, yeah, yeah, the, the government school. You know, if you are a black person, I think you definitely have a much better experience at HKS, you know, the Kennedy School, than you do at HBS. And I think you know, as you get older and your social cycle is now narrowing to like these like wealthy investment class types of human beings, you know, it is selecting for a particular kind of personality that. Uh, I think, you know, from my experience, you know, is not the most welcoming for, for anyone who's different, whether that be even a white woman. Um, yeah, so, so I mean, I think, you know, I obviously rambled on through a lot of things, but, you know, the short answer, I think, is like my blackness is, is my weakness and also my strength. Nah, it's not rumbling, my friends. So this conversation took me to a couple of special places. It reminded me of the metaphysical power of the mind. First, fiercely protecting his ability to dream has kept Nelson engaged with his own destiny, kept his curiosity and his creative juices flowing, kept his spirit unshrunk by the limits of the life in the village. Second, the obstinacy to maintain perspective and remain solutions-focused when dealing with the brutality of the challenges that life handed him also enabled him to rise above dire circumstances. I'm usually fairly skeptical of the modern, somewhat simplistic mantras related to the power of the mind. You become what you think. We have the life we want or imagine. These can be misconstrued as unidimensional. I have always found their implied simplicity of putting, as it can give us, not always, but it still can, room to leave the less fortunate among us to their own devices and not fix challenges that require collective resources and collective action. The conversion rate of our dreams is very much enhanced by the building of tangible solutions together as compassionate and human societies. Nelson's story takes you above that paradigm though. You dream hard and you frantically reframe your difficult circumstances, not because it guarantees life outcomes, not because it necessarily reduces the amount of luck you will need along the way, but because as humans, that is the level we can pull to keep the flame of our desire to move forward burning no matter what stands in the way. Similarly, I was baffled by Nelson's grace when sharing the most heart-wrenching parts of his story. Another lesson there. Dignity, strength, and grace are often the only shields we have if we want to pierce through tragedy and pain while maintaining the grandeur of our aspirations on the other side of them. Thank you, Nelson. To all, look forward to part two to be posted soon. Bye for now.